It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Hi, I'm Teresa. And I'm Amy. We are two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. This weekend, my husband and I went tree shopping for our backyard. A couple years ago, the neighbors in the cul-de-sac behind us cut down a couple of trees, and we've been exposed for years. Like, we can see everything. I think they didn't want to deal with them anymore. So when we were shopping at the nursery, I was struck by a sign that was on most of the trees. And it had these five bullets. And it just, it made me look. First bullet said, invest in your home. A tree provides decades of enjoyment while substantially increasing its value save energy. Trees cool our communities by shading buildings and pavement and evaporating water through their leaves. Planting three or four trees to shade your home can reduce summer cooling costs by 30 to 50 percent. Wow. I know. And the next bullet was improve air quality. Trees can clean the air by absorbing harmful pollutants such as sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxide, and particulate that can cause asthma. Conserve water was the fourth bullet. Trees intercept rainfall and slow the rate of storm runoff. They reduce... Reminds me of Langari. Yeah, well, I'm going to say, yeah, reduce flooding and soil erosion, improve quality by filtering out contaminants, and then it enhances health. Trees contribute to healthier living by uh, encouraging outdoor activity, Mm -hmm. and they say views of trees speeds health and improves your mental health. So I well, thought that was pretty. I know. And it was it was really educational to me <laughs> because it did make me think of, yeah, episode 19 where you talked about Wangari Mathai and her mission to plant trees. With the Green Belt Movement. Yeah, yeah. the Green Belt Movement. And I just, I love that these podcasts are helping me grow and really change my too. perspective. Like, I'm seeking these places for inspiration. My husband's like, even at a nursery. Like, we're shopping <laughs> for a tree. But still, it's a place. It's a place. Exactly. And then also, I want to talk about um, Emily Penn, you know, in episode 20 about the waste um, plastic pollution. This she found a toothbrush in the ocean. Yeah. It's crazy. It kind of made me think, you know, what, is there anybody doing anything about plastic in general? And I came across this nonprofit plastic bank. And so they they kind of focus on, they on the poverty areas with most pollution And they set up these recycling banks in countries like Indonesia and the Philippines, offering its members, plastic waste collectors, an opportunity to earn some money. So they bring the plastic to the local branch, and then the branch sorts it by type and color, and the plastic's weighed and valued in exchange for these digital tokens that are immediately deposited into the member's account. And then these tokens can be redeemed for necessities such as groceries, cooking, fuel, school tuition. And there's a big list and more. But, you know, after being collected, the plastic is recycled and processed into new raw material, which can be purchased by manufacturers to produce environmentally and socially ethical products. Mm-hmm. I just Wait, love it. All the way around. Yeah. Cleaning up the mess. Right. Um, and people that... Like, Don't have that water. infrastructure yeah. to, to, to recycle like... Good find on I know. I thought it was I kind of interesting. My feel-good story this week, I came across an article about Brad Paisley and his wife, Kimberly Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, a couple years ago, inspired by a store in Santa Barbara called Unity Shop. 
that helps families and communities for like more than a hundred years. I'm trying to remember. She's the one that was the father of the bride. Yes, yes. father of the bride. That's her. Yeah, she's a super cute couple. Love them. Yeah, those movies. The couple had brought their two sons to the Unity Shop to teach them about serving others and giving back to the community. And it's interesting. The article said that couple felt like they were the ones that learned the most. Yeah. It's sometimes it is. I thought they were saying that, you know, people don't want a handout. Yeah. They want dignity yeah. and respect and to become self-sufficient. So they wanted to do something similar in Nashville. They were thinking about like a, a free grocery store. Mm-hmm. And so they named it The Store. And it was three years in the making. And then they were going to have a soft opening last spring, but COVID hit. Yeah. So they had to scramble and find the best way to serve Nashville. And Paisley's longtime record producer, Luke Wooten, hmm. called him out of the blue and said, hey, you know, I think you should try to focus on the most high at risk, the elderly. And so Wooten himself kind of researched where in Nashville the elderly lived. He masked up, gloved up, and started delivering groceries. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And they, they partner with a local food bank, Second Harvest, there in Nashville. But then they also do just a lot of donations. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to mention that website at the end there. So you can donate if you're, if you're in the area or interested. I think there's multiple ways to help. But now the store delivers 330 bags of groceries a week to those in need of all ages. Wow. Their nonprofit also serves meals Wednesday through Saturday. It started off... A dozen, or now they're serving 15,000 meals in two, in two months. They also offer curbside and delivery menu options as well. And the couple notes that it really takes a village and recognizes that their volunteers are putting their lives at risk, you know, I mean, with COVID. And so if you want to donate, it's thestore.org. But I love this story. I can just relate to the parents, too. You know, use this as a learning opportunity. Well, that's what I love, and that it ended up turning into something so amazing for other people. Yeah. Trying to teach their kids a lesson. And also, way to go for the celebrities using their fame. Exactly. You yeah, know, I, in I a good way. I love stories like that. Awesome. You know, I'm so enjoying doing these podcasts with oh my you. Gosh, me too. Me too. I am learning so much about so many fascinating people. That I wouldn't have learned about before. I know, totally. I really look forward to each week researching someone new. And this week, I researched Rachel Carson. She was a marine biologist, author, conservationist in the early 20th century. I was really inspired by her ability to write about science in layman's terms, making it understandable and accessible to all. Her style of writing is almost poetic. Rachel was born in 1907 in Springdale, Pennsylvania. I didn't realize she was born like, I know. in the 1900s. I know. She was the youngest of three. Her mother was a daughter of a Presbyterian minister and a teacher, which really impacted Rachel's upbringing and love of learning and nature. As a young child, she would sit on her family's front porch and listen to a conch and dream <laughs> of the sea. And it just sweet. She lived on 65 acres and spent a lot of her time exploring nature. She enjoyed watching birds making nests and the butterflies flying about. Rachel's mother was an avid bird watcher and taught her daughter that people must share the world with nature and all creatures. I love that. I know. Very sweet. Her mother would even hand carry insects out of the family home. (laughs) That's above and beyond. Um, I like to get them 
the little critters out of my house, but I have to put them under a cup and oh, then have yeah. one of my children rescue me. Oh. I don't want to kill them, right, but, but I also cannot be like Rachel's mother oh, so sweet. and touch them with my own hands. I love it. <laughs> I loved how her mom encouraged Rachel to have respect for all living things. If Rachel had a question about nature and her mother didn't know the answer, she would show Rachel how to look things up in books. This had a huge influence on Rachel in the beginning lessons that would really lead her to be an environmentalist. Now, she was a shy girl, which I can relate to, <laughs> but she was very determined to be a writer, even at a young age. She published her first story when she was just 10. Wow. I know, in the St. Nicholas, which was a monthly children's publication that features stories and poems from writers such as Mark Twain, mm. Louisa May Alcott, and they also had writing contests submitted by children. Mm-hmm. And the winners were awarded silver and gold badges and sometimes even money. And Rachel submitted a story based on a, a story her brother, Robert, who was in the U.S. Army at the time fighting World War I. He'd written a letter home about a Canadian pilot who kept flying even though one of his wings had been shot off. And she received a silver badge for that submission. Oh. Yeah. And she makes can, me want to go back and read that story. I know. I kind of want to look yeah. up that St. Nicholas. I wonder yeah. if you can find some. I'm sure you can. I'm some sure of it's the, online. Yeah. So she continued to write stories for St. Nicholas through high school. She studied hard and was well-liked by teachers. Rachel was a perfectionist. And a quote by a high school yearbook wrote, Rachel's like the midday sun, always very bright, never stops studying till she gets it right. <laughs> I just thought Someone's that was a sweet. poet. And they, yeah, totally. <laughs> Uh, In 1925, Rachel went to college after high school. It was a big deal back then. Mm -hmm. Not many women attended college. She got a scholarship to Pennsylvania College for Women. It was only 16 miles from home. And she wanted to be a writer and studied English. Later, she took a science class and fell in love with biology. But then her main interest was zoology, the study of animal life. She ended up getting her degree in biology to pursue a career as a scientist instead of a writer. And it's, Hmm. yeah, it's interesting to note that during the 1920s, women made up only 39% of college degrees awarded in the U.S. And after graduation, many became housewives and mothers because it was very difficult to get a job as a woman. That's pretty frustrating. Yeah. And actually, 39%, that I... That seems high. But but that they just didn't go on to pursue a career. A a career after that. After college, Rachel wanted to pursue a graduate degree in science from John Hopkins University. She also got a scholarship there, and then during the summer, she was invited to Marine Biological Laboratory at the Woods Hole in Massachusetts, Hmm. where she would get to work alongside very well-known scientists, and for the first time, she got to experience the beauty and wonder of the ocean, which she... She had been dreaming about that conch shell on her porch. a kid. And she was such a go-getter, really a woman ahead of her times, before completing her graduate degree... She visited the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries in Washington, D.C. to find out if any job opportunities <laughs> for biologists, which I, I just, I think, gosh, I can't even get my kids to go get a job yeah. at Walmart. Yeah. Just somebody that she knew that, that, that yeah. jobs for women were slim. Just had that drive. The drive. Yeah. Yeah. So she spoke to the acting director at the time, Mr. Elmer Higgins, who said he's never hired a woman scientist before. Oh, uh, that didn't stop Rachel. And three years. Thank goodness. I know. So that might be a deterrent that would, for... That might have deterred me. Yeah. But three years later, she received her master's degree in June 1932. 
And then the Great Depression had hit, so it made it even harder for her to find a job as a scientist. She was competing with men. I know, in a tough time economically. Then her dad died, forcing Rachel to help support her mother and family. So she went back to Mr. Higgins, and he offered her a job to rewrite scripts for a radio program, Romance Under the Waters. She had such a knack for writing about science and nature, making it understandable for the audience. Mr. Higgins was so impressed with her writing that he suggested belong in a magazine, not in some government booklet. Which I thought, thank was, goodness, he made that suggestion. He made that to encouragement. Her. Yeah, because I think that's unusual. She needed the extra money to support her family, so she sold a piece to the Atlantic Monthly magazine, and they published it under a new name, Under the Sea. So I'm gonna. I just wanted to read this because I just want to give you an example of how she writes. Mm-hmm. So she writes, "Who has known the ocean?" She asked, neither you nor I, with our earthbound senses, know the foam and surge of the tide that beats over the crab, hiding under the seaweed of his tide pool home. I just, I love the imagery. I can totally see this little crab in his home. This article got the attention of editor Simon Schuster Publishing Company, who asked Rachel to turn her article into a book, which is really cool. Yeah. So in 1941, she published her first book, Under the Sea-Wind. And at the same time, the U.S. entered World War II. Her timing isn't right. Because <laughs> not many people were interested in reading about the ocean at the time. So that wasn't the forefront. I mean, yeah, there were other yes. priorities, definitely. Right. So the book sold very few copies. And Which would be discouraging. Very discouraging. But Rachel continued working at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And due to the wartime effort, she wrote about food rationing Mm. in a series, Food from the Sea. Rationing forced Americans to eat more fish than they ever did before Hmm. World War II. During the war, it fostered all sorts of ideas for Rachel. She started studying bats and kind of looking at it like with the sonar and the radar. She really wanted the world to know and understand how nature and humans, their decisions impact the world around Mm -hmm. them. In 1945, atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima, ending World War II and having a huge impact on the entire planet. Rachel was opposed to nuclear testing and nuclear war. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, knowing that it would have grave ramifications for the planet. After the war, while working at the Fish and Wildlife Service, Rachel also spent a lot of time hiking, exploring nature. She went deep sea diving and was taken with the ocean's beauty and published her second book, The Sea Around Us. And this book Mm. talked about how the ocean affects all of us. Again, she wrote in such an educationally a beautiful way. And she also wrote about ecology, the relationship between a group of living things and the environment. This book was a huge success, so she decided to publish her first book, Under the Sea, again. And both Mm -hmm. were on the bestsellers list. Later, she finished her trilogy in 1955, The Edge of the Sea, And all three books were written in really a unique poetic style, Mm -hmm. unlike any science books before. With just boring facts. Yeah, I mean, they're very beautiful. Well, during the research for the book Edge of the Sea, she became aware of the pollution from factories and dumping of garbage in streams and ocean. And she also became aware of pesticides like DDT. Mm -hmm. They were in high use during the end of World War II. They then later became available for home use. DDT was used to limit the spread of inborn diseases like malaria and typhus mm-hmm. during the war. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, they were just like spraying this on people's heads. Oh, I was watching man. a little clip and just all over their bodies. They didn't know. They didn't the, know oh. how bad it was. Oh. 
It was initially used back in the U.S. for agricultural use and then became used in households for pest control. And Rachel knew this would have an impact on plants, animals, and as well as those who consume, like, harvest from the mm-hmm. crops. So in 1957, Rachel's sister passed away from pneumonia, and that was really hard because she adopted her son, uh, Roger. So she's about 50 at the time and mm. now has, like, a 5-year-old mm-hmm. to take care of and her aging mother. So things were pretty tough, and Rachel's own health wasn't good. She was tired a lot of the time. But even in poor health, Rachel kept thinking about the impacts of pollution and pesticides on the environment. And she received a letter from a friend about numerous dead robins in her yard. Her friend wrote that the birds had died shortly after the yard was sprayed with pesticides. And the interesting thing with these mm. pesticides spraying, it didn't get rid of all the mosquitoes. And there were more than, sometimes there were more than before. That surprises me because you would think it would just kill everything. Well, I guess in some cases there was some sort of mutation in the mosquitoes. And so they mm. weren't affected by the DDT. So uh, you're just spreading this really harmful poison. chemical. Poison. Yeah, poison. And it's um, not doing the job that you think it's doing. Right. A group was started, the Committee Against Mass Poisoning, and letters just flooded in in the Northeast about the effects of the aerial pesticide spraying programs. The committee led a lawsuit in New York and wanted Rachel to cover the story. Rachel began to speak to experts on insects, animals, as well as doctors and hunting and fishing groups. At this point, Rachel was no longer working for the government, Mm -hmm. so she knew this was dangerous work, and she wanted to keep it a secret. She wanted her research to be accurate, and she had her facts double-checked by experts. And when you say that it was dangerous work, was she worried that she might disappear? I think she was just worried that it was going against the government. At this time, they didn't... You didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Rachel found the problem with the pesticides and pollution were worse than she imagined, and early studies show that animals exposed to DDT frequently develop tremors, seizures, and vomiting. And the chemical is believed to be a carcinogen Mm -hmm. in humans. So it's pretty bad stuff. In the middle of uh, Rachel's research, her mother died of a stroke. Still, she kept focused on her research and writing. And she, too, was getting sick. Mm -hmm. And in 1960, was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She had a mastectomy, which was radical for the Mm -hmm. time. Looking ahead, next month, I'm going to cover a lady named Vera Peters, who's oh. actually the mother of the modern mastectomy. Because back in when she would have had this done, it would have been very invasive. I mean, they would but have taken pec muscles and, right. and all sorts of things. So, yeah, she had to have been a strong, strong, strong woman. woman, for sure. So early in her diagnosis, they said that she only had months to live. And she was so worried about... I wonder not- if that's because they didn't know much about breast cancer or I because so. Rachel's case... Well, and I also, I think that, I think maybe they didn't know enough. Mm -hmm. And also, I I think that they weren't always upfront about the, you know, some of the diagnosis. Mm Because I've read, too, that the doctor wasn't completely upfront with her, too. As far as how far it had spread? How far it had spread. Oh, my gosh. That's cruel. I know. And I, I think it was just kind of the the nature yeah. of how the how practice, the back, practice then. back then. So she forged on. And in June 1962, her groundbreaking Silent Spring appeared in the New Yorker. That's the one I had to read in college. Oh, yeah. you did? I still remember my professor because he did not. It was during spring term. He didn't believe in deodorant. Oh. I mean, he was very natural. Yeah, because there of, you go. This is why he's having us read this book. So it brings back all sorts of memories. Oh, but wow. yeah, that's yeah. the book. I have read this book. Well, so yeah, it was put in three parts. And then the book was later published in September. And she highlighted the 
dangers of DDT and describe the consequences of overuse of many pesticides. And I was just going to start, I just want to read this again, because I just find her writing style just so beautiful. Chapter one, it begins, there was a town in the heart of America where all life seemed to live in harmony with its surroundings. The town lay amidst a checkerboard of prosperous farms with fields of grain, hillsides of orchards where in spring, White clouds of bloom drive above the green fields. It's really idyllic. It's just very descriptive. Very. Just normal American life. Right. You can almost see the buzz buzzing about. Then she later writes describing the pesticides. Then a strange blight crept over the area and everything began to change. Some evil spell had settled on the community. Mysterious maladies swept the flocks of chickens, the cattle, and sheep sickened and died. I just, I love how descriptive the words are she mm-hmm. uses. They describe this really horrific event. Her book reads more like a story than a scientific textbook, yet information is scientific and accurate. In the fall of 1963, her cancer had metastasized to her bones, and she di- mm-hmm. died a year later. What an impact her writing had on the environment and governmental policies on use of pesticides. Silent Spring led to the creation of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and other grassroots environmental movements, which led to the campaign to ban DDT in the U.S. by 1972. The EPA has been described as the extended shadow of Silent Spring. And in 1980, Carson was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian honor in the U.S., she was also on the Great American series postage stamp. Oh, that's cool. I know, very cool. And there's so many more awards and just she's such an amazing woman. And I have to just give a shout out to the Rachel Carson School of Environmental Science here in Beaverton, yes, Oregon. I, I, but there's many buildings yeah, named after yeah. her. Which it's gonna be kind of like when you were talking about trees and thinking back to Wangari, now that you know more about Rich Carson, it. you're gonna see her more and right. things will pop up. I just admire her approachable writing style, mm-hmm. love of nature, and ability to capture its beauty, as well as her persistence to reveal the truth behind DDT and ultimately spurred an environmental movement. She was truly a feminist, speaking out against the harmfulness of pesticides and pollution. And this is so unusual given the time period. It really reminds me of Eleanor Roosevelt. Well, and I love that she isn't afraid. Right. I mean, she's not going to back down. She's using her words right. as power. I just enjoyed researching her, and both of those women were just remarkable. Yeah. Another one to add to the list. I know. Um, so amazing my, women. So my quotes, I have two quotes. Mm-hmm. The first one is, the more clearly we can focus our attention on wonders and realities of the universe about us, the less taste we shall have for destruction. Which I just find... I'm going to have to repeat that a couple times. I know. So it's like focusing on the beauty, the wonder around us. The more you focus on that, the less we'll have a desire, taste for destruction. Mm -hmm. Which I I just... I found that really striking. And then the second one that really kind of spoke to me was, Those who dwell among the beauties and mysteries of the earth are never alone or weary of life. Because it's all around them. We're all kind of connected. I love that. I love both of those. love both of those. As we've seen, we know plastic is everywhere. It packages the food we eat, the toys our children play with, the products we use. It's literally everywhere. Plastics made our lives easier. Right, yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, and I'm guilty. As we've been plogging and picking up stuff, I know. Um, you know, the little 
clips for bread. Oh, the, yeah. And even the tooth floss things that I people just one of those toss. Up yeah. Yesterday um, when we were plotting. Plastic bags. And it's just, it really is, it's convenient, but we need to do something about it. So it's incredibly versatile, insanely useful, and very, very hard to get rid of. Ultimately, we're never going to be going back to a time before plastic, so we need to move ahead. Modern technology and advances require it. However, what we need is a way to handle plastic waste other than dumping it into landfills in the ocean. Right, yeah. So waste plastic, we know, is everywhere. You see it on the roads. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. It fills our landfills, and it's so prevalent in our oceans that there are approximately 46,000 pieces of plastic in every square mile of ocean. Wow. That's pretty Around 8 million pieces of plastic make it into the ocean each day. As Amy said in episode 20, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is mostly plastic, is the size of Texas. This plastic. That's huge. And you know, Texas is huge. It It is. You can barely drive across that in a day. In March of 2021, the Marine Pollution Bulletin published a study that showed that after doing deep marine video surveillance with unmanned drones, they found the densest spot of garbage on the abysmal seafloor, and almost all of it consisted of single-use plastics, which wow. guilty of, too, with yeah. plastic bags. At least with our plogging, we're reusing right. our, our target plastic bags. Those are sturdy. So, yeah, they t- they're, they're getting some use. <laughs> But each year, over 10 million tons of garbage, consisting mostly of plastic, sinks to the seafloor, which surprises me with how it gets there. Yeah. But this plastic is very slow to break down, and when it does, it doesn't biodegrade. It simply becomes smaller pieces of plastic that are then ingested by fish and even humans. I saw this story where one woman, a teacher, is taking, like, old plastic and using that to teach her kids about the plastic doesn't really go anywhere. It kind of, it fades, and it gets smaller, but definitely doesn't go away. One of the concerns raised by this study is that the plastic floating on the top of the sea, which is very visible, eventually sinks to the seafloor, making it seem like the surface garbage is not increasing as rapidly as it is. So kind of deceiving. Yeah, tracking the amount of garbage on the seafloor is far more difficult tracking the surface garbage. Plastic pollution on land is not much better, as we've seen. You can find plastic all over the place on land. When we go plogging, you know there's a ton of plastic garbage along the road, in the bushes, in the grass, especially bus stops we've right. seen. Yeah. It's just crazy. It's cigarette butts. Yeah. Cigarette butts, cigarette packages. Yeah. Fast food. I know. Stuff that's just tossed. But anyway, it's all over. Where we live in Portland, Oregon, the metropolitan area, we have curbside recycling that takes certain plastics, but even then, it's limited to only specific types of plastic, and they've really pulled back on a lot of that. Still, a ton of the plastic ends up in the garbage. It's estimated that only 9% of plastics get recycled. 9%. Because no. Yeah. So in the United States, most of the plastic ends up in landfills, where it slowly breaks down. Just some numbers on the breakdown of things in landfills. Most paper products, like paper and cardboard, decompose in two to six weeks. So not bad. That's why when we've talked about back in the old days, they bought meat with the wax paper, and now it's all in that styrofoam Styrofoam, and plastic over it. So food waste that's not directly composted can take between six months to two years to decompose completely. I didn't realize that. Cigarette butts can take 10 to 12 years to decompose. I think that's the whole thing because okay. we've seen some pretty. Must be the filter. That yeah, must the take filter a while. seems to um, stick around quite a while. But a plastic grocery bag can take between 10 and 100 years to decompose. A leather shoe can take 25 to 40 years. 
An aluminum can left in a landfill can take 80 to 200 years to decompose. Many single-use plastics and thicker plastics can take up to 400 years to decompose. Glass left in a landfill can take up to 1 million years to decompose. In Europe and much of the rest of the world, garbage, including plastics, are incinerated, leading to air pollution. Yeah. So we're just trading one problem for the other. But 8.3 billion tons of plastic have been produced since the 1950s, and an estimated 6.3 billion have been disposed of as plastic waste. Oh, man. This trend, definitely not, is unsustainable and is poisoning the planet, which is why we're talking about it for Earth Month. Bet you're thinking I thought this was supposed to be a happy, inspirational podcast with all this gloom and doom. But there is some good news, and that's what I'm going to get into. Some of the inventive smarty pants types on the planet are coming up with ways to address all the problems I've mentioned. Okay. I wanted to share some of the ways that scientists, engineers, and even politicians are tackling the plastic waste problem. In recent years, there's been a trend to ban plastic bags or at least reduce their use. In the United States, states like Maine, Delaware, Hawaii, Vermont, Connecticut, and Oregon have passed legislation that bans or significantly reduces the amount. Just reading. U.S. News and World Report, and those states are in the top 10 for best recycling. Oh, I love that we're in the top 10 of that. I know. That's, I love this Instagram account that is going zero waste. And this woman, every Friday, she posts, you know, stories like that where it's oh, cool. good news around the world, like, you know, different. Back when France said that they couldn't throw away food, they had okay. to give it away to people that were hungry or just different good news things right. every Friday that she has. Oh, sounds Got to look that up because it is very promising or optimistic and encouraging. Some cities have enacted similar prohibitions on plastic bags at the municipal level, such as Boston, New York, Chicago, Seattle, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. As of July of 2018, 127 countries have passed some sort of legislation to reduce the use of plastic bags, which is great. Yeah, for sure. Many countries are starting to enact bans on other single-use plastics as well. A single-use plastic is something that's intended to be used once and disposed of, which, once again, convenient, but, you know, we see spoons and forks and all of that just garbage. Unlike, say, a plastic bowl that'll get used over and over again, these items are made with the intention of being thrown out after they're used one time. This includes a lot of food containers, plastic utensils, plastic straws, plastic water and soda bottles, foam takeout containers, plastic stirrers, and like I mentioned last week, those plastic tooth flossers that are all over the place. And it's annoying that people drop those on the ground just wherever they're at. It's gross. Why are they doing that? I know. Kenya, India, the UK, the European Union, and Canada have all passed laws to phase out common single-use plastics like plastic straws and utensils. Some states have likewise enacted laws to reduce single-use plastics. Even certain companies are getting on board and coming up with eco-friendly options to replace single-use plastics like paper straws at restaurants or bamboo utensils. And they are annoying, like the paper straws, but still better for the environment. The the forks and the bamboo aren't bad. No. Yeah. Um, the straws that are bamboo, they do kind of hold a Take taste. Flavor, yeah, yeah. yeah, but um, these are all very important steps to reducing plastic waste in the future. What can we do about plastic waste sitting in our landfills or in the ocean? In episode 19, I talked about Four Ocean, which right. removes one pound of plastic from the ocean for each sale it makes. 
I think this is such a great idea, but what can we do with that pound of plastic? Scientists have discovered certain types of bacteria that can break down certain types of plastics. Oh, How cool is that? symbiotic relationship. Think plastics, like a plastic bag, can be yeah. broken down in about six weeks. Thicker plastics, like those in a water bottle, might take months. They've found that different types of bacteria are more effective at breaking down certain types of plastic. Scientists are still working on how they can effectively and safely utilize this type of biodecomposition. That's fascinating. And how they can possibly create more effective strains of bacteria, which <laughs> sounds, it's uh, sounds like a movie, through bioengineering. Scientists have also discovered several types of mushrooms. Oh, that's interesting. I know. That can break down and even feed on polystyrene, a main ingredient of many plastics. What's more, some of these mushrooms are edible. Okay. This discovery may be vital to dealing with plastics in underdeveloped countries that could use plastic waste as a food source for an edible crop. So, once again, win-win. Some companies are using recycled plastics to make clothing rugs, and shoes. Surprisingly, these fabrics, made mainly from recycled water bottles, are making comfortable and stylish clothing and footwear. Major brands like Patagonia and Rothy's, you know I love Rothy's shoes, are leaning heavily into environmentally responsible plastic recycling. So the Rothy's shoes, they're all made out of plastic, and you can wash them, and they're comfortable. Another way to utilize waste plastic is to use it to build things. India's been making roads utilizing waste plastic in the asphalt for about 20 years now, although on a relatively small scale. Over the past 20 years, India has paved almost 60,000 miles of road that has included waste plastic in the asphalt. It may end up as a way to use a large amount of waste plastic. In countries where there are few paved roads, but more roads being made, as in countries that are developing, the use of plastic could be great. For example, the country of Ghana only has 23% of the roads paved. As the country develops, they could potentially use thousands of tons of plastic waste as a basis for their asphalt to pave those roads. What's even cooler is that the waste plastic can actually make better asphalt. Most asphalt is made of 90 to 95% some sort of base material like gravel, sand, or limestone, and 5 to 10% what they call bitumen, which is a black gooey stuff that comes from petroleum that glues it all together. I picture that like tar. It's super stinky. Waste plastic can be used to replace that, and it's a much stronger binding agent. This can help substantially improve the strength and lifespan of a road. One company that uses plastic in its paving projects, MacRiber, said that each for each kilometer of road it paves, it would use the equivalent of 750,000 plastic bags. Wow. And for each ton of asphalt it mixes, it would use the equivalent of 80,000 plastic bottles. Wow. That's a lot of plastic. That's a lot. Yeah. It is. Huge. As of 2016, it's been mandatory in India to use asphalt-containing plastic. The Netherlands are exploring replacing traditional asphalt altogether. They're trying pilot projects to make bike paths completely out of recycled plastic. The Plastic Road Company is testing out ways to make roads with no asphalt, completely made out of post-consumer plastics. So far, the tests have worked out well, and even as road sections wear out, those sections can be replaced and the old section can be recycled and used again. Another way it can be used in construction is to make it into bricks. Oh, There are several companies trying to do that, but I'm going to focus on Genji makers in Nairobi, Kenya. They're making bricks utilizing waste plastic that's five to seven times stronger than normal concrete. 
They use leftover plastic that cannot be recycled by conventional means. The owner and founder, Kenjenji Nazambi Mate, takes waste plastic from packaging manufacturers and buys leftover plastic from recyclers to make her product. So getting rid of the waste and making a new thing. Her factory makes 1,500 bricks a day from six different types of plastic. The plastic is heated and mixed with sand, then pressed into bricks. Since her factory opened in 2017, she's recycled more than 20 tons of Plastic waste. That's awesome. So that's where some of that four ocean. Because that's actually quite a bit because plastic's so light. Yeah. That's really dense. That's a lot. That's a lot of plastic. plastic. The problem with plastic is not going away and we have to take action now to do something about it. I think it's just awesome how these people are figuring out ways to reduce the amount of single-use plastic used by consumers and ways to break down or reuse the single-use plastic that are already polluting our lands and waters. That's awesome. Like and subscribe. Follow Transgential Inspiration on Facebook and Instagram.